Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Harvard University law professor Jeannie Sue Gerson, who examines Donald Trump's call to Georgia's Secretary of State, pressuring him to change the state's election results, his latest attempt to subvert U.S. democracy. James Goodale, a law professor and former vice chair and general counsel with the New York Times, who discusses the effort to extradite WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to the U.S. to face espionage charges. And Kenneth Surin, professor emeritus at Duke University, who takes a critical look at the consequences of the trade deal that preceded the United Kingdom's exit from the European Union. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Weeks before the coronavirus pandemic ravaged the world, indigenous activists were in the streets across Canada engaged in protests seeking to block construction of a natural gas pipeline in Wet'suwet'en lands. The actions triggered what Foreign Policy magazine called the Year of Indigenous Activism in Canada, which forced Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to intervene in the conflict between the Wet'suwet'en First Nation and provincial authorities in British Columbia. Although Canada's 1.6 million Indigenous people are extremely vulnerable to the coronavirus, activists launched a series of protests throughout the year that addressed disputes over lobster fishing in eastern Canada and trophy hunting in Quebec's wildlife reserves. Trudeau has embraced the Indigenous rights cause, but shied away from direct federal government intervention in conflict resolution and failed to deliver on campaign promises such as pushing for the ratification of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. His minority liberal government has prioritized oil and gas development over the rights of First Nations. Critics warn that Trudeau is now on the wrong side of rising public consciousness in support of indigenous rights and redressing many decades of abuses and grievances. Around the world, climate change is causing drought, desertification, flooding, and unbearable heat, threatening to make vast regions less habitable. Science predicts that over time, these changes will set off one of the largest migrations of refugees in human history. But, as the New York Times magazine observes, for a few nations, climate change will present new opportunities as the planet's coldest regions become more temperate. These regions experiencing warming temperatures will also likely witness a significant influx of climate refugees driven from the hottest parts of the world where life will become increasingly harsh. Across eastern Russia, wild forests, grasslands, and swamps are slowly being transformed into orderly grids of soybeans, corn, and wheat. It's a process that's likely to accelerate. Russia hopes to seize on the warming temperatures and longer growing seasons brought by climate change to refashion itself as one of the planet's largest food producers. Five years ago, Marshall Burke of the Center for Food Security and the Environment at Stanford University projected that northern countries like Canada, Russia, Iceland, and the Scandinavian nations would experience as much as a five-fold increase in GDP by the end of the century, 
while national per capita income in the United States, Europe, and India are all forecast to decrease. Labor activists are celebrating a breakthrough in New Mexico, which reformed its public sector labor laws in March. It became one of the few states to allow card check elections where public employee unions are recognized if a majority of the workers sign union cards. Federal labor reform legislation, dubbed the Employee Free Choice Act, proposed authorizing card check union elections in the early days of Barack Obama's first term, but the measure died in Congress. In These Times magazine reports that nine states have strong regulations protecting card check elections for public sector workers in California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois, New Mexico, Massachusetts, Oregon, Washington State, and Maine. Two states, New Hampshire and Oklahoma, passed union card check laws in 2004 and 2007, but repealed those provisions in 2011. New Mexico will be a test of whether labor law reform can help unions recruit new members and sign new contracts to make up for decades of lost ground. If unions in New Mexico succeed under these new regulations, organized labor will likely campaign for similar reform laws in Virginia, Nevada, Colorado, Delaware, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, states which all have Democratic Party governors and legislatures. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. In President Donald Trump's ongoing effort to subvert U.S. democracy, he placed a call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffsenberger on January 2nd and pressured him to find enough votes to overturn Joe Biden's win in the state's presidential election. In the hour-long recorded conversation, Trump cited false claims of fraud and the shredding of thousands of ballots, and then threatened Raffsenberger with a criminal offense if he failed to change the state's vote count. Democratic members of Congress variously responded to Trump's phone call by demanding an FBI investigation, impeachment, and censure. Fannie Willis, the newly elected district attorney of Georgia's Fulton County, said her office stands ready to prosecute Trump for his conduct in the phone call. The uproar over Trump's latest illicit effort to overturn the election came as 140 Republican members of the House and at least a dozen GOP U.S. senators vowed to object to the January 6 certification of the Electoral College's December vote that confirmed Trump's re-election defeat. Trump called on his supporters to come to Washington, D.C. on January 6 to protest the certification of his election loss. Your reporter spoke with Jeannie Soup Gerson, John H. Watson, Jr., professor of law at Harvard Law School, who discusses Trump's exposure to criminal charges from his Georgia phone call and the ongoing threat to the nation's democracy posed by the president and his Republican Party supporters. Many prosecutions, many federal prosecutions um, for many different kinds of federal crimes have proceeded on much less evidence than what we have here, which is a direct recording of the potential defendant 
specifically saying the things that make out potentially the elements of the crime. And then it's a matter of proving the different elements. But for example, the federal election law that we would be talking about, it's one that makes it a crime to knowingly and willfully attempt to deprive or defraud state residents of a fair and partially conducted election process. And that is what he appears to be doing in speaking with the secretaries of state of Georgia and basically suggesting that he find a certain number of votes. And he says specifically, I need this number of votes, which is one more than what the margin is between him and Joe Biden. So because the statute says if you knowingly and willfully attempt to do that, to attempt to deprive and defraud people of a impartial, fair election by tabulating ballots that are known to be materially false, fictitious, or fraudulent, that's what the prosecution would have to prove. Now, the problem here is that it might be that that Trump, you you could argue, um, and certainly his defense would argue, that he did not think that he was asking or demanding for anything fraudulent or false to occur. That's a factual question about whether Trump knew that what he was asking for or demanding was for fraud. I think that that's where it comes down to um, a matter of what you think about the president's mental state. And I, I can that in itself, even though it's a legal and factual question, I am sure is going to be very polarized and divided based on who you are and how you see this president. What kind of jeopardy is our democracy in as we stand here on the cusp of the inauguration on January 20th? There have been so many unprecedented steps that not only Donald Trump have taken in terms of contesting what is uh, objectively judged as a, a fair and free election on November 3rd, but also a large number of elected officials in the Republican Party are similarly taking the same stance that this was a fraudulent election and that Donald Trump deserves a second term despite the facts. What's the danger do you think we uh, are encountering here right now? And in the long term, what kind of rough seas is our democracy going to encounter? The idea that it's not just Trump and not just his White House, but half, more than half of the Republicans in the House of Representatives and almost a quarter of the Republican senators, they are planning to object to electoral votes for Biden. They have made clear that that is what they are going to do. And I understand that that um, with one side of their mouth, some of them may be saying, well, this is not really going to work. We don't expect it to work. Really, this is playing with fire, that there's an election result and we have really significant numbers of one party, the losing party, actually saying they're going to um, make an organized effort to object to electoral votes. I really do think that we need to keep our eyes peeled. Professor Garrison, what are a few of the most important things you think we need to do as a nation to strengthen our democracy and our institutions that were exposed as being very vulnerable to abuses of power that we've seen unfold in these last four years of the Trump administration? Well, you probably won't like this answer, but um, there's going to be a lot of efforts to, to look back in the rearview mirror and say, oh, 
we didn't have a law for that, and we didn't have a law for that. We need to pass a law for that. We need to pass a law for that. There were all these loopholes or these gaps in law. But what I ultimately think is that um, no amount of law is going to be able to cover um, the possibility of elected officials abusing their power if they're bent on doing so. And ultimately, you know, good, sure, we can fill in some gaps and say, oh, we didn't think of that, we didn't think of that. But ultimately, the only safeguard is for people to become more more informed and more active in in how they live out their political lives. And I think the intense uh, voter turnout and engagement that we saw in the past season, even though it did not necessarily prove to be kind of a landslide in favor of Joe Biden or the Democratic Party, I, I, I think that ultimately that's about as good an answer as we have, that people should be more engaged, informed themselves. All kinds of people voted in this election that previously would have been more apathetic. And I and, you know, that that's a mixed bag. But I, I ultimately people do deserve the government they get. That was Jeannie Suk Gerson, John H. Watson, Jr., professor of law at Harvard Law School. Find a link to Professor Gerson's recent New Yorker magazine article titled A Test for Congress's Commitment to Democracy by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The long saga of the U.S. government's attempt to extradite WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange from a British prison to face espionage charges in the U.S. was dealt a setback on January 4th. District Judge Vanessa Baritzer ruled against the U.S., saying Assange would be at extreme risk of suicide if he's held in a U.S. prison. But the judge rejected Assange's lawyers' claims that the charges were an attack on press freedom and were politically motivated. In 2010, Assange published secret U.S. documents on American conduct in the Iraq and Afghan wars, as well as State Department cables, sent to him by Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning, then known as Bradley Manning. He then took refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy in London and continued working and living there for seven years to avoid extradition to Sweden, where he faced sexual assault charges that were later dropped. Assange was evicted from Ecuador's embassy in April 2019 and arrested by British authorities. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with James Goodale, a former vice chair and general counsel with the New York Times and author of the book Fighting for the Press, the inside story of the Pentagon Papers and other battles. Now a professor at Fordham Law School, Goodale discusses the UK court ruling and what could happen next in Assange's legal battle. He has been accused in the U.S. about violating U.S. laws. The United States calls up and said, hey, we've got this guy over there He's uh, violating U.S. laws. Catch him and hold him until you uh, can send him back to us under whatever rules you have that govern the uh, remission of persons to this country. So, yeah, it's just U.S. law that he's being held for. Can this ruling be appealed? And if so, by whom? No, well, what happens is that this case is is run entirely by U.K. lawyers. They're... uh, called QCs, their trial lawyers, Queen Counsel. So they try the case, they appeal it, they're the ones who speak, but everyone tells me that the case is being run really by the CIA and by the United States Justice Department. 
but the, the guys who are, and it happens to be guys who, who actually are uh, doing the talking are U.K. lawyers, and they represent the U.S. basically uh, in the U.K. James Goodale, the judge was really delivering more of an indictment on the U.S. penal system than a clear statement about whether what Julian Assange did should be protected as free speech, wasn't she? That's a U.S. issue. Uh, there's no First Amendment, really, to speak of in England. And if there were, it wouldn't make that much difference, really, because it's got to be decided back here whether the U.S. First Amendment protects him under U.S. laws. Okay, so she can't decide over there what's going to be decided here. So the big, big-time issue, she takes little pieces out of here and there, but she can't really decide the case. Only uh, what is she supposed to decide is whether he comes back here or not. So she takes a look at the uh, prison system and uh, says to herself, I don't like what I see. Uh, you could say that uh, it certainly puts a critical eye on a system the United States has for its prisoners who are involved with uh, national security. And we have to recognize, first of all, that the prisoners about whom she is talking are terrorists. So you got the question, first of all, whether should terrorists be treated that way or not. That's sort of a general question that's out there. Well, this is not a terrorist case, right? It's the signs. So she says, well, look, they've got these rules for those who are in these kind of uh, prisons. Let's apply them to Assange. And she's saying, effectively, that doesn't make too much sense for Assange. So there's something inadequate with respect to the protection that an Assange type gets in the prisons in the United States. And also an indictment, in a sense, of the fact that he's being sent away to the United States under the Espionage Act, because an Espionage Act is for spies, and terrorists are more like spies than Assange's. But in any event, uh, the uh, Espionage Act doesn't fit Assange very well. I wouldn't say it's a wholesale indictment of the U.S. justice system. I think that would be going too far. But I think it's fair to say it really raises a question about how fair it is with respect to someone like Assange. When you said the Espionage Act didn't fit, yeah, I heard that it's never been used against a journalist. And I guess that's the heart of the matter. Does the government consider him a journalist? Well, here's the thing. There is no law. Congress has never passed a law that addresses leaks. Okay, that's number one. So number two, the Justice Department looks around for what laws they might have, and they come up with something called the Espionage Act. And just by its tally, you know it doesn't apply to a size language is, is imprecise to begin with, and secondly, historically, it came out of the First World War, and they're looking at the German spies, basically. So when you look at the language and think about its history, then you try to apply it to someone in the digital age who is uh, publishing and gathering information that's been leaked. It makes no sense to me at all. We do have a First Amendment in this country, and the First Amendment is there in this case to permit the public to know about leaks of classified information. Why? Because everything is classified. Millions, millions, millions of documents. And it's not as though we want to know about the inner secrets of well, We want to know how government works. 
if every time we ask the question, the government says, I won't tell you because it's secret, well, then they go off and can do any darn thing they, they want to, including committing war crimes and not giving us any access to what they've done. So what this case is about is how we, the American public, get access to that information. That was James Goodale, a professor at Fordham Law School and former vice chair and general counsel of the New York Times, who's been following the U.S. effort to prosecute Julian Assange. Find more perspectives on Julian Assange's legal battle by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. After four years of political and economic turmoil, the United Kingdom formally exited the European Union on December 31st, after 47 years of membership in the EU and its predecessor, the European Communities. The June 2016 Brexit referendum divided Britain along racial and political lines, with passionate supporters and opponents on all sides. The UK is the first and only country to formally leave the EU. The 11th-hour Brexit trade deal approved by Britain's parliament was celebrated by UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who claimed that exiting the EU was a victory for the British people. But critics note that while Mr. Johnson's deal averted tariffs in UK-EU trade for the moment, there will be millions of additional customs forms and inspections that will cost British businesses that export goods to continental Europe. Additionally, the UK's Independent Office for Budget Responsibility forecasts that Brexit will cost Britain 4% in GDP. Other consequences of Brexit include a still unsettled solution to border trade between Ireland, an EU member state, and Northern Ireland. And the UK's exit from Europe has energized the Scottish independence movement that is working to schedule another referendum to leave the UK and rejoin the EU. Your reporter spoke with Kenneth Surin, Professor Emeritus of Critical Theory at Duke University, who takes a critical look at the consequences of the UK's departure from the European Union. He got about 43% of what he wanted, according to informed commentators uh, who uh, have written about these um, negotiations. Uh, the EU negotiators... Um, got nearly everything they wanted. Um, so his bragging may have fooled uh, the less well-informed sections of the public, but um, um, no, he came off badly in this deal. There's no doubt about that. There were many estimates given before the Brexit vote that departure from the European Union would cost the U.K., dearly in terms of income and businesses would suffer. What are the current estimates of the economic consequences of Brexit? Well, the British government's own uh, statistical agency, uh, the Office of National Statistics, ONS, says that GDP in the UK will fall by about 4% in the medium term. 
And, you know, that's a very serious uh, decline, economic decline, because uh, uh, the British economy is, of course, already suffering from the impact of the pandemic. Um, so the, the news is not good um, economically. But look, we have to put this in context. The UK has been in a protracted, long drawn out economic crisis since the collapse of the post-war welfare state compromise between capital and labor. That's the period from 1945 to uh, the early 70s. And this compromise, uh, which enabled unions to be strong, uh, wages to be high, et cetera, et cetera, was definitively ended by Margaret Thatcher. Um, and since then, the UK uh, has really not found a way to break out of the impasses um, created by the ending of uh, this agreement between capital and labor. And I think this is something that needs to be said. Being in the EU neither reduced nor worsened the nature of this crisis. Now, Brexit, although its terms and conditions have been presented as uh, economic and political, Brexit is fundamentally about a Tory culture war. Um, the culture war is designed to mask uh, a right-wing, deregulated, uh, um, free reign for rigged markets, etc., um, a neoliberal project. Um, but in order to conceal the true nature of this neoliberal project, uh, a culture war designed to distract uh, and even to, uh, to con um, Britain's subordinate classes, which have been long drowned, downtrodden, and they're understandably very angry. And these are the people who abandoned the Labour Party uh, and fell for uh, the blandishments uh, and the empty promises of the Conservatives. So... Um, what are we to do about this culture war, which is which is going to be uh, continuing? Uh, there's no doubt about this. There's a very stubborn nostalgia for what people were better days when Britain had an empire, uh, xenophobia, suspicion of foreigners, etc., etc. And dissatisfaction with the Tories will, I think, be driven more by the pandemic than it will by Brexit. But, you know, that's a speculation. Um, we will just have to see how things work out. That was Kenneth Surin, Professor Emeritus of Critical Theory at Duke University. Find a link to Professor Surin's recent article titled The UK's Brexit Shoddy Deal, Surrenders More Than It Receives, and additional analysis and commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website, 
at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in MP3 and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, KMXT in Kodiak, Alaska, Progressive Voices Network heard on TuneIn, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.